Amen. So here's how we're going to roll tonight. I'm going to read you the entire text, and then we're going to break down the text verse by verse by verse. And if you haven't been with us, we are in a series in the book of Romans, and we're simply going through verse by verse by verse, not skipping one verse, but traveling through the entire 16 chapters of the book of Romans. And so you happen to land tonight on verse 15, and we're going to finish out the chapter tonight by going through verse by verse by verse. So let's start by reading the entire text. I know that's small for some of you who are in the back, but don't worry, I broke it down into smaller sections which are larger uh, as we go through the message itself. Let's read together. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of that one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you were once present, just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Now the Bible is a book that spans the entirety of human history starting with the very first verses, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it then goes to the creating of the first two people, Adam and Eve. And then there, two sons, and one son murders the other, and then there's a third named Seth. And people begin to multiply on the earth. And do you know who wrote the first five books of the Bible? His name was Moses. And Moses wrote about 1500 BC. So the first five books of the Bible were were written about 1500 years before Jesus came on the scene. And then within that first century, the whole New Testament was written. So what we could say is over about a span of 1500 years, the Bible was written, and now it has been 3500 years since Moses first started to pen, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 3,500 years is a lot of time to span in one book, okay? We've had this book for 3,500 years. This is an ancient text, yet it is God's word, and it is applicable to us in 2021. And it will be for those who come hundreds of years after us if the Lord doesn't come back. I heard one theologian say, what if people look back thousands of years from now and call the 21st century early church history? (laughs) Maybe. 
Every generation thinks that Jesus is coming back in their time, and they were all wrong. (laughs) And he's not back yet. What if this thing goes on for another 10,000 years, and we are the early church? It's possible. Now, what this text deals with is slavery. Slavery, even just mentioning slavery, some of you are already uneasy, like, oh, I don't like this. But the Bible is not afraid to use that language or that construct, okay? And if you're familiar with the Bible at all, you know that the Bible is loaded with references to slavery. But just in these verses here, the word that that is the core of the word slavery is doulos, and that word appears in our text nine times. I'm sorry, eight times in nine verses. Eight times. So the point is, this is a theme of our text here, being a slave. Now, that being said, I want to do a bit of what's called apologetics real quick. Uh, If you've done any witnessing, especially in Wilkinsburg or in, in the black community, you know that one objection to Christianity is that the Bible condones slavery or the Bible supports slavery, or the Bible allows for slavery, or even in some cases, it commands slavery, which is is just not true, but it's believed. And so I want to address that quickly before we start to travel through the text. So listen up, if you've heard this, or if you've thought this, or if you don't know how to answer this question, listen up. I'm not gonna go as deep as we could go because we only have 45 minutes, but I'm going to give you an answer to this objection that is often leveled against Christianity. The first answer is that the slavery that is spoken here of by Paul and the context of Greco-Roman slavery in which culture Paul is writing from is not the same as American race-based chattel slavery. It's totally different. Still bad, still not good, but not at all the same. In fact, it was so not the same that most slaves in the Greco-Roman world were prisoners of war, and if they didn't become slaves, they would have been slaughtered and killed. And they were not treated sadly, or or maybe better, in the same way as African Americans were treated by those who held slaves in our American history. They were teachers, they were artists, they were sometimes in politics, they were at high levels in society in Paul's day when he wrote this. Here is a a quote from an article called Slavery in the Roman World. Slavery was an ever-present feature of the Roman world. Slaves served in households, agriculture, mines, the military, workshops, construction, and many other services. As many as one in three of the population of Italy was a slave. One out of three people in Italy at this time, remember this is the letter to the Romans, Italy is the capital of Rome. One of three people was a slave in Rome at this time, in Italy. Now, listen to this. One of five across the entire empire was a slave. That means good chances are one out of five of you, if you lived in this day when this book was written, would have been a slave. That's pretty astounding. But they would have been at all levels of society, and get this, many different ethnicities. Not one ethnicity, many different ethnicities. In fact, you could become a slave by falling into debt. And this, when you read the gospels, this is clear. You remember uh, the man who owed an unpayable sum to the king? 
And what was the charge? It's throw this man and all of his family into prison until he can work off his debt. So you would go into slavery to pay off a debt that you could not pay. So that was one way of slavery. Um, this word here that is the root in these eight instances is doulos. Now it's variations of doulos, but here's what the word doulos means. It means slave, bondservant, or servant. And depending on the context, that is how it is used. Gavin Ortland, who is uh, Dane's brother, Dane, who I just referenced his book there, uh, his brother Gavin is also a theologian, and their father, Ray Ortland, is a champion theologian, a hero of mine. So Gavin Ortland wrote uh, an article I would commend to you. It's called, Why Is It Wrong to Say the Bible is Pro-Slavery? Okay, look that article up and read it, but here's a little excerpt from it. The Greek word doulos can be translated slave or sometimes servant or bondservant and often referred to people who had a surprising level of legal and social status in the first century, Greco-Roman world. Most were not slaves from their birth or for their whole life or because of their race. For instance, the Roman jurist Gaius, second century, claimed that most slaves were prisoners of war who actually would have been slaughtered if not made slaves. Practices like slavery, polygamy, and divorce were common in antiquity. Remember, we're talking about an ancient book and ancient cultures. In the ancient culture, we're not talking about American culture here, he's saying that slavery, polygamy, multiple people in one marriage, and divorce were common. This was just common in society. Biblical instruction that allows for them in certain contexts isn't necessarily biblical approval. So if it addresses a current issue in the culture, which the Bible does, that doesn't mean it's approving of it. That is a key insight to this question here. You know, Jesus was asked, what about a woman who was married and then her husband dies and, and so she marries one of seven brothers and then that brother dies and, and so she marries all seven brothers and they're trying to trick Jesus. In the resurrection, and these asking didn't believe in the resurrection, so they're trying to trick Jesus. Whose husband will she be? And Jesus kind of shakes his head, I imagine. You do not know the scriptures, you Bible scholars. And they were scholars, insult. You, you don't understand the scriptures or the power of God. For in the resurrection, People are not married or given in marriage, but they are like the angels of God. And in another place, Jesus addresses the relationship of marriage, and he says this, in the beginning, God created them, male and female, and the two shall become one flesh. And what God has joined together, finish it. Hey, and so Jesus said, that's the design and order of God, but because of sin, it's all jacked up and not two becoming one. And sadly, the patriarchs were sometimes three becoming one or four becoming, I mean, it was, it was all messed up. And, and interestingly, what the Bible does often is it does address a subject without necessarily saying, cut this out of society. One more addressing this. Um, how many of you read Confronting Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin? A few of you. Okay, not enough of you. Okay, this is an apologetics book. This is a newer. Uh, the Gospel Coalition put this out. A whole chapter, Doesn't the Bible Condone Slavery? 
And interestingly, in here, she actually quotes uh, a theologian named Thabidi Anyabwile, and she addresses even the, he addresses and she quotes uh, the question even of the Puritans who owned slaves. That's a common objection to Christianity. What about the Puritans? You guys love the Puritans. Didn't they own slaves? Listen what uh, Anyabwile says about Jonathan Edwards, the premier Puritan, if you will. While Edwards was wrong to argue that slaveholding is not innately sinful, which we would say it is because uh, 1 Timothy 1.10 says man-stealing is a sin, and that's what happened in American chattel race-based slavery was men were stolen from their homeland of Africa and then sold all over the world. So that in itself, at the very foundation of it, cuts it out from the foundation. 1 Timothy 1.10. So he says, even though Edwards did not hold it to be innately sinful, he rightly condemned the transatlantic slave trade, rejected the idea that Israel's history could be invoked to justify colonial abuse in Africa, and argued that God would not quote-unquote wink at man-stealing, and recognized Africans and Native Americans as spiritual equals. Edwards was the first pastor in Northampton to allow full church membership to black Christians, and he argued in the 1740s that there could be no advance of evangelism in Africa until the slave trade had ended. Okay, that's one little paragraph in this book. I highly recommend it. I think we've sold out in the bookstore. The the answer to the question is, it's not the same And if you then travel to the letter of Philemon, which we won't do because we don't have time, and I preached an entire four-week series on it. It's one chapter. I preached four weeks on it. It's in the archives at eternalcity.org where I opened this whole thing up even more. In Philemon, Paul is addressing a runaway slave who he finds and evangelizes, and he becomes a Christian, and he sends this runaway slave back to his owner, Philemon. And he says, You are not to receive him anymore as a slave, but what? A brother. In in one sense, cutting out the whole under foundation of master and slave. And then he says to Philemon, don't forget you have a master in heaven to whom you will answer to. And so in one sense, Paul is deconstructing the whole institution by saying, you realize slave and master are on par with each other before God, and every master will give an account before God of his actions and his attitudes and his deeds. Okay? And so we, we could unpack this more and do a whole night on this, and maybe we will in one of our you know, series breaks, but for now, there's enough to say what Paul is talking about is not the same as what happened here in America, okay? So listen with ears to hear, see with eyes to see, and make the distinction, okay? Thumbs up. All right, good. So let's do this. Eight times we're gonna see slavery happen here, and who is the slave? We are. Every Christian is now a slave and was once a slave. So whether you're Christian or not Christian, you're still a slave. It's just in what sense are you a slave? Do loss is the foundational word here, and it's used in a variety of ways about eight times in these nine verses. What then are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Now, Paul here is addressing what Justin so well uh, opened up for us last week, and that is primarily verses 12 to 14. 
Here's what it says. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies. You have this body. It's not immortal. It's mortal. It will pass away. And you are not to, as a Christian, let sin rule and reign over your body. You're not to obey sin's command and will. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Now, your members are the different parts of your body, your tongue, your eyes, your ears, your fingers, your feet. You're not to say to sin, personified as a person, I am yours, do what me with you will, blah, do what you will with me. You are not to do that as a Christian. You once lived that way, sin was your master, and you obeyed it willingly. That's his argument here. But, here's the contrast, present yourselves to God, no longer to sin, but to God, as those who have been brought from death to life, spiritual death to spiritual life, and your members, your body parts, and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Now use your body for God's expansive kingdom. Use your body to honor God, not to obey sin. That's his argument here. That's his instruction for Christians. For sin will have no dominion over you. You are not to be dominated by sin, Christian. That's what Paul says. You are to fight sin, wrestle sin, and ultimately by the Spirit, Romans 8.13, kill sin. Slit its throat, let it bleed out. You are not to obey it anymore. That's the violence which, with which we are to treat sin. But most of us, we treat sin more like a pet. And we feed it, and we cuddle it, and we guard it, and we say, you better not touch my precious sin. We don't treat it like an enemy that is to be killed and destroyed. We treat it like a pet that is to be coddled and cuddled because it serves us a temporary good. Sin does have temporary blessedness. But as we'll see in 623, in the end, its wages are death. So this is the context which verse 15 opens up. For sin will have no dominion over you. Why? Because you're not under law, but under grace. You see, those who are spiritually alive no longer have the law hanging over them as an outside condemnation list. The only thing the law has the power to do is to condemn you to show you your sin, and to present you guilty before God. No one can be cleansed by taking the law of God and seeking to obey it. The only thing the law can do for you is show you your need of a savior and show you how high the bar is and how low you are and your impossibility of jumping over that bar. That's all the law can do. It's a mirror that shows you how dirty you are. And anyone with common sense does not use a mirror to cleanse themselves. They turn on the faucet, they get out the soap, they rub soap and water all over them. They don't rub their face all over the mirror. Look at all that dirt. Mirrors are not for that. The law is not for cleansing you and making you righteous. Don't use it that way, friends. It's not what it was designed to do. It was designed to show you your sin. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? That's a good question. So since we now have the favor of God, undeserved, unrestricted, demerited, and it's ours no matter what, shouldn't we just sin because it's, I mean, God will forgive us. 
In the words of Mob Deep, if God's real, he'll forgive me. Anyone remember that song? <laughs> 90s hip hop. By no means, or God forbid. It's the strongest no that Paul could muster. No, is what he says. Probably that loudly too. No, do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of that one to whom you obey? So the, 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 the illustration here is master and slave. And he's saying, sin is like a master. And if you present yourself willingly to sin, sin is ruling over you. Do you not understand that, Paul is saying? Don't you understand that if you present yourself to sin, here I am, I am yours. I pledge allegiance to you, sin. Do with me what you will, for I love you. Paul's saying, don't you realize that if you present yourself to sin, it will rule you. You are not to obey sin. You are slaves of the one to whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Now, there's two options here. We will either be slaves of sin or slaves of righteousness. You know what's not here? Some neutral position. There is no neutral, friends. You either are one or the other, and I want you to ask yourself, where are you tonight? Now, if you're a Christian, you, you've confessed Jesus as Lord. You've believed in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. You've asked for mercy and grace because of Jesus' work in life, death, burial, and resurrection. If Jesus' death was your death on the cross and his resurrection counted as your resurrection, you are positionally not only righteous, but positionally a slave to righteousness. But friends, there is a great difference between position and practice. And often, we're all good with the position. It's like, I'm a Christian, I'm righteous in Christ, I am, I am not a slave to sin, but in practice, you're a mess. You got slim, slim, slim shady. You don't listen to him either. He's not gonna encourage you towards righteousness, okay? Don't listen to Mob Deep either, that was just a reference. I'm not asking you to go and look them up on Spotify after this. <laughs> Sin, sin is where we live often and we're swimming in it and it's dripping from us. And some of us come in here and we're, we're, we're wearing sin like clothing and we're okay with it. We're like, I'm a Christian. Jesus died for my sin. I'm righteous, I'm resurrected with Christ. Meanwhile, if anyone else looked at you and they looked at a non-Christian who is outwardly not professing to be a Christian, we'd be like, what's the difference here? Oh, you say you belong to Jesus, that's the difference. Because I don't see any practical difference in attitude, in motives, in words, or deeds. I don't see any difference. So what makes you a Christian? James says, some of you say, I have faith, but you have no works. And then James asks a penetrating question, can that faith save you? And the answer is no. 
Friends, if we just have a verbal profession of belief in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, yet there's no life to back up the profession, we have just verbal faith. And James says, that faith will not save you. And I love you, and so I'll tell you that. Now, if that's you tonight, you're like, man, I'm swimming in sin and loving it, but yet I profess Jesus, what do I do? You don't go to the law and then seek salvation. You go to Christ, the only one who can save you from your sin, the only one who on the cross took all of your sins that deserve hell and wrath from God forever. He's the only one that can save you. So friends, don't go from a life of enjoying and swimming in sin to a life of trying to clean yourself up, which is also self-righteousness, which is also a sin that Jesus died for. If you're stiff-arming Christ and saying, I got this, I'll clean myself up, you're not looking to Christ. You're looking to yourself for salvation. Do you see that? And so what's the answer? You look away from yourself to the only savior who can save, amen? And so here, are we to sin because we're not under law? No, no. Don't you know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or righteousness. Those are the options. And friends, I want everyone in this room to be number two. I want you to be a slave to righteousness because righteousness is personified later in the text for God. Slaves of God, the mighty, the all-knowing, the creator, the holy, the author of life and death, the one who holds the keys to death in Hades. Obedient to Christ, obedient to God. This leads to righteousness. Death or righteousness, which one do you want? Friends, I want righteousness. I need it, but yet I can't do it on my own. We need help. Verse 17, but thanks be to God that you who were, were, past tense, once, past tense, slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart, I love it, to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Now, heart transformation is 100% necessary if you're going to be a slave of righteousness. Heart transformation is not something you can do. You are not a spiritual heart surgeon. You cannot change your own heart. Ezekiel 36 says, that God will himself take out your heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh, give you a new spirit, give you the Holy Spirit, and cause you to walk in his ways. Righteousness, walk in his ways. So this new heart is only something God can do. Again, what do we do if we need a new heart? We ask and beg and plead for mercy. God, change my heart. Do you know what flows from a new heart? New desires, new loves, new passions, which then pursue the new. Did you know that your will is not free? 
So we think of free will this way. We're like, I can choose whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want. That's not how the will works. The will is more like a steering wheel and something is causing the car to go. Without an engine and gas in a car, it's not going anywhere. So what is the engine and the gasoline? It's your desires. It's what you want, it's what you love. And so your desires and your love drives the will. The will is free to choose what it most wants or what it loves. But that is how it is free. And friends, you need a new heart to have new desires, to have new loves, so that you can then choose what you most want. That's how this thing works. And that's what is being said here. He's saying, but thanks be to God, not thanks be to you, Roman Christians. He's not praise you, Roman Christians. No, thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching which you were committed. God does the heart change and then the obedience flows out of a new heart. In fact, the proverb says, guard your heart with all vigilance, diligence. Why? That's right. For from it flows all the issues of life or in one translation, from it is the wellspring of life. All things flow out of the heart. In other words, the heart produces desires, the heart is where the motives are, and then your will will choose after your desires and after your loves. You need a new heart, friends, and God can do it, and you must ask him to give you a new heart. You say, God, change my desires, change my will, change the the loves. Because did you know that in John 3, 19, men loved darkness instead of light, and they will not come into the light for fear their deeds will be exposed. That's penetrating into the human being. In other words, the love of darkness will keep you from coming into the light. If you love sin, you will guard it from God, and you will not come near to God, rather you will run from him. Because it's what you love. If you love sin more than God, you cannot come close to him then. Because he will take it from you. He demands it. And so if you love sin more than God, it's not gonna go well for you if you're claiming to be a Christian. You must renounce your sin, give it up, say God take it, I don't want it. Offer it to him. But friends, if you are guarding it from God, you will not be close to him, period. If you're treasuring some sin in your life and you're like, why can't I have victory in other areas? Why can't I come close to God? Why do I feel so distant? You're treasuring sin and sin and God don't mix. It doesn't mix, friends. Now that doesn't mean when you become a Christian, there's no sin. That's Romans 7. Indwelling sin, the sin that lives within me, it's there, but it's not a love affair anymore. Do you see the difference? It's I hate this. Why do I keep doing this? Why do I keep thinking this way? Why do I keep falling this way? What is wrong with me? 
It's not a love affair anymore. We're not hiding the sin. Don't come near it. That's not our disposition anymore. And we have to move on or we will not finish this text. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves to righteousness. Now, you being a slave to righteousness is your position as a Christian, but we want it in practice, don't we? We want to be practically living out God's will. That's the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Jesus said, go make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teaching them what? To obey all I have commanded. Teach the disciples to obey everything I've commanded. That I am the Lord and I get to direct the life. We need to become slaves to God, not to sin anymore. Let's move on. John 8, 44 is a, is a penetrating text as well. Jesus is speaking to a hostile crowd. They do not believe his claims to be the Messiah or God. And he tells them how they are in their slavery to sin and what is their actual position. You are of your father the devil, and your will, your will, is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, when we are slaves to sin, this is the, the condition. Satan has a will, and we have a will, and guess what? It's parallel. We desire to do Satan's will. What he wants, we want. This is the condition of not having a new heart. This is the condition, as Ephesians 2 says, you are under the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We all lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh. Okay, that, that was us. You were once slaves to sin, but now you are slaves to righteousness. You have been transferred out of this place where you and Satan line up parallelly as far as will and want and desire go, and now your desires line up with another father. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. James also helps us here. This is the piece uh, that backs up the desire and the will. Let no one say when he is tempted, tempted to sin, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. In other words, there's no, nothing in God that is, is attracted to evil. God has no desire to see you sin, and there's nothing that is evil that God is, is drawn to, like us. We have to fight sin, we have to go to war with sin, we have to gouge out eyes and chop off hands and look the other way and beat our bodies into submission, not God. It's totally disgusting to him, 100%. He is holy, 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 separate from sin, to the degree that we cannot understand because we have it living in us, even as Christians. So God is not tempting anyone, but 
Here's the deal, James says, verse 14. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by what? His own desire. Your temptation comes from inside of you. Your desires. Where do your desires come from? Your heart. And then your will chooses according to your desires. So don't ever blame, according to James, anyone else but yourself. Look at yourself, friends. You will do so well to look at yourself instead of blaming everyone else. And by the way, this is just practical. If, if you're the way you are and you're swimming in sin and it's everyone else's fault, then everyone else has to change for you to get out. Think about that. If you're the victim and it's everyone else, then if everyone else doesn't change, you're stuck. But that's not what the text says. If it's you, you have the ability to call upon God for strength and power and victory. And you have, furthermore, a community of people that can come around you and aid you and keep you accountable and pray for you. See, if it's your problem, you can do something about it. But if it's, it's not my fault, you're stuck. But see, each one is tempted when their own desires lure them and entice them. They're calling to you, and you go. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. Exactly what Paul said. Slaves of sin resulting in death. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Let's go to 19. Am I, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. All right, now what Paul is referring to here, the natural limitations, he's putting this in human terms, calling sin a slave and calling righteousness a slave. He's invoking this institution of slavery that was so prevalent in Rome, remember, in Italy, one of three, and in the Greco-Roman world, one of five people were slaves. Everyone understood this concept of slavery. And so he says, I have to speak in human terms because of your limitations. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. In other words, it's not exactly like slavery. It's deeper than that. But this is an illustration I can pull out of culture and give you some understanding of how sin works and how righteousness works. How your former state was not with God and how your now state is with God in Christ, united to him in his life, death, burial, and resurrection. This is the way I'm illustrating this. He says, but there are limits to this illustration. Because it's not exactly like slavery. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Now, get this. This is, I'm sure, your experience as it was mine. When I was a slave to sin, and I was, and listen, I was a willing slave of sin. Slavery to sin is not against your will. You're all in. You're embracing sin as personified. You're like, come here. And, and you just pull it in close. I love you. You give me what I need. You give me satisfaction. You give me comfort. You give me joy. And then 
It's temporary, isn't it? And you need more and deeper. And the high is not as high as it was. And I gotta go to deeper depths and higher heights with sin. This is what's being said here. Look, he says, lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. And see, for those of us who were addicts, and I don't want hands, but I was in this camp, we always would say to ourselves, I got it under control. I could stop when I want. I could, I could pause on that. I'm not addicted. I don't need it. Meanwhile, deeper and deeper and deeper we continue to dig. Harder and harder drugs. Drinking more and more ounces. To the point where I was, I, I kid you not, I was, you know what a beer bong is, that tube with the funnel at the top? Beer bonging vodka. Did you ever do that? All right, we can see if anyone else has else. One person, two people, all right. <laughs> My people back there. I hope it wasn't last night. This is my former life, okay? We need to repent. <laughs> Love you. And, and, and if you've ever done that, this is kind of what it's like. You're kind of walking normal and all of a sudden you're just like, and you're just crippled. And you don't know if it's Tuesday or Friday. You don't know if your name's Chris or Christina. And it's, you're just done. <laughs> But that, and then you wake up from that, you feel terrible, and you're like, I'll never do it again. And then you feel okay at the end of the night, and you're like, where's that, uh, where's that bottle? You know what I'm talking about. So substitute alcohol for whatever your sin is. Lawlessness leading to more lawlessness until it leads to some kind of death. And that's where the text goes next. But before we go to the death, let's do the righteousness leading to sanctification. See, righteousness or practicing the will of God or living like a real disciple or following Christ <laughs> leads to more and more depth with Christ, more and more depth of relationship with God, higher heights with peace and revelation and joy. You're either going deeper with sin or you're going deeper with God. Those are the options, friends. Again, there's no neutral. There's no middle position. And so the encouragement here is if you will begin to go after God and begin to call on him for the power to do what he commands you to do. Remember the song, all I have is... All I have is Christ. There's that line that says, all that you command, the strength to follow your commands could never come from me. And so Augustine prays, command what you will, but grant what you command. You, you could tell me what to do, God, but I need your power to do it. And as you practice the will of God, you go deeper and deeper and deeper with God. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Good, good. And if you don't, that reality is open for you. It's here on the table for you even tonight to take. I want to be free. Even though the word is slave, it's actually 
paradoxically freedom? Free to do righteousness, free to live rightly, free to live according to God's will. For you were once slaves of sin, and you were free in regard to righteousness. Now, that, that term right there, free in regard to righteousness, means you, you had no master called God, and you had no master called righteousness in one sense. Now, even those who are slaves to sin still are under the sovereign rule of God and will meet him one day as judge. Yet, they are not willingly his slave. They are willingly the slave of sin. And so here, he says, when you were a slave of sin, you were free in regard to God. You were your own God. You had Satan as your father, and you wanted to do his will. Like father, like son, like father, like daughter. Your will and his will lined up perfectly. And he gave you temporary pleasures and hid the consequences from you. He didn't show you the end from the beginning. He just showed you the immediate temporal blessing. But, verse 21, what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you were now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. And now here's where I just want to take a minute. Notice he says the end of those things is death. This is the trickery of Satan. He shows you this glorious, glowing, beautiful sin. Temptation. And listen, I'm never tempted to eat my dog's crap. Ever. <laughs> Ever. When I'm cleaning that stuff up before I cut grass, I'm like, oh my gosh. I'm never like, uh, no, never. It's never a temptation, ever. I'm only tempted to sin with those things that attract me. Temptation is not a temptation unless it draws you and lures you, as James said. It calls to you and you hear its voice and it sounds like sweet music and you're like, you're just kind of being moved along towards it. But see, what's hidden in that moment, all the blessedness is promised you. It's gonna feel so good. It's gonna help you. It's going to get you out of trouble. Just lie. You don't have to tell the truth. Think about all the bad things that are gonna happen if you tell the truth. Isn't that a reversal? But the end is always hidden. There are some of us who experientially in here who could tell you that they are master manipulators. And they've learned with practice, they've gone from doing it to getting better at it to getting better at it and now they're masters. They have their PhD in manipulation. How did they get there? Because they were slaves to it and they obeyed it and it led to more and to more and to more and to more. Now the end is, it's hard to be truthful, isn't it? You live in a world that you don't know what is right or wrong even at times because you've convinced yourself. You see, the end is always hidden in the temptation. But see, the end of those things 
is death. Friends, I'm just gonna list a few things. Death of relationships, death of marriages, death of parent-children relationships, death of property, death of your vehicle, death of friendships, death of future goals and dreams, death, death, death. You know what I'm talking about. Sin leads to death. Don't blame everyone else. Look at your own sin and take responsibility. I love you. That's why I'm speaking this way. This is not the way to grow a church. Tell everybody they're a mess and they're headed to hell and they need to take responsibility. Clearly, I'm not caring about that. What I care about is that you get free and you begin to practice the will of God and taste and see that the Lord is good. That's what I want for you. That's what I want for me. I want any temptation that comes to me to be like that dog crap. I know it's crass, but it works. I don't want that. Get that away from me. It's on my shoe, man. So the idea here is it leads to death. Now, let's finish. We're done. But now, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get, the result of being a slave to God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Friends, did you know that up until very recently, I would say with the dawn of the Enlightenment, everyone believed in an afterlife. Everyone believed that there was somewhere that you went after you died. Death was not the end, but rather a doorway to the beyond. And in this text here, verse 22, when we are slaves to God and we practice God's will, you know what the end is? Do you know what happens when death door is opened by the Christian? Everlasting, eternal life. No more death, no more crying, no more suffering, no more pain, no more tears, no more depression, no more conflict, no more political wars. I can't wait until I don't have to vote for a president every four years. No more debates. I can't wait. No more rude people. I will never be rude again. I praise God. No more alarm clocks, man. (laughs) Shut up. There might be alarm clocks, I don't know. There's no verses about that. But the idea here is you get eternal life and the promises of the Bible of of what is to come, resurrection life, where all the sin gets extracted out of reality and there is no more of it in you or outside of you, that is where we're headed. To a physical, real earth, remade, curse-extracted animal kingdom in harmony, you can go swimming in shark-infested water and love it. Not afraid. Because the curse is reversed. Sticking your hand right into a bee's nest to get that honey out, 
no stinging, just munching right on that honey. Resurrected honey, I can't wait. I just thought of that. Can't wait, it's gonna be awesome. All right, verse 23. This is probably one of the most famous verses in the Bible outside of John 3, 16. For the wages of sin is, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Sin will have an ultimate payout. Eternal death. The wages or the payment, your paycheck for your life of sin, unless someone else pays the cost, you will get the payment, you will get the reward, and it will be standing before God on judgment day and accounting for all of your thoughts, words, and deeds. And that is terrifying, unless, unless the judge stepped into your judgment already. And that's what it is to be a slave of righteousness now, a slave of God. It's that the one who can condemn you was condemned in your place. He took the wrath that you deserved, and now there's none left for you. And so the wages of Jesus' death is our life. But if you don't turn to him, and ask him for forgiveness and plead with him for mercy, then you will show up on judgment day in need of a savior and there will be none. You will have to face all of your sin on judgment day in like a big pile. Stuff you've forgotten about. Years and years and years and years of sin that God has not forgotten about. You will answer for all of it. But the good news, friends, is that the free gift of God is eternal life, forgiveness, cleansing, mercy, grace. And you know what? We're, we're told that we're not just slaves to God. That's one metaphor but we're also sons and daughters of God. We're also friends of God. We're also ambassadors of God. We're also reconcilers, seeking to see people be reconciled to the living God. You see, once we are in Christ, there's multiple nuances to our relationship with God. It's not just he's a slave master commanding us. It's one aspect, we do need to be obedient. But that's not the only aspect. You have a new father. You have a new power source to live this life that he asks you to live. And I wanna say more, but I don't have time. The last thing I'll show you is this, and we're done. I've recently read this book by David Pallison. It's called How Does Sanctification Work? It's a great book, David Pallison, uh, was a biblical counselor. He's called the Yoda of biblical counseling. I would amen that. And so he created this little diagram, and he says that these are the five factors of your growth, your change. God is always at the foundation because God is the one that works on you. But truth 
changes you. And you got a lot of truth tonight. On the right, my right, wise people change you. This is fellowship, this is other Christians, this is Christian community. Christians were not designed to do this walk on their own. Wise people and other Christians are God's means of helping you further obey the will of God, to be slaves of righteousness. On the left, we don't like this, but suffering and struggle changes you. It has the capacity to do that, if you will let it. Many of us shake our fists at the heavens when suffering and struggle comes. And God's saying, I'm trying to grow you. I want to grow you. This is a tool for your growth, and you're kicking it like a football. Get it out of here. I don't want it. And so suffering and struggle has the capacity, has the possibility of drawing you closer to God. And let me practically just ask you a question. How many of you, in the worst times of your life, you called upon God with the most fervor, power, with need, with desperation, and God was most near to you. Let me see hands. Just look around. So you know this is true, we just don't like it. (laughs) I don't like it either. Like I wanna grow by sipping a grande and eating a pumpkin muffin. That's how I wanna grow. Why can't I just grow like that? Why do I gotta struggle and suffer? It's just not God's design. His design is that we suffer and struggle and through that we grow. And then the, the fifth thing is we actually change. How many of you have looked back five, 10, 20 years and, and you can say, I am not the person I was? You really are different. But you can't look back to yesterday or even last week or even last month. God is interested in long haul change long-term sanctification. He's not into microwaves and microwavable popcorn. He's not into that. Long, long process growth is what God is all about. And so be encouraged. If you're suffering, if you're not as far as you'd like to be, because he is not done with you if you're a Christian. Philippians 1.6 says, he who began a good work in you is faithful to bring it to completion. The completion is eternal life. Eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord.